and jump back into our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. You can see the passage we're going to be in this morning in Matthew chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament, if you want to begin making your way there. Um, when, I was, when I was little, uh, there was a special that came on for several years at Christmas. I don't know how many years it came on, but it was known as the Claymation Christmas Special featuring the California Raisins. Does anybody remember the California Raisins? Yes, so I'm not, all right, I'm not, I'm not old yet, but I know there's some of y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. This is how cool the California Raisins were. Hardee's, I believe it was Hardee's, had, like, you could get the little figurines if you got a little kid's lunch bag, and so me and my brother were set on getting the entire band, and so the first series, there's only four of them, and we got all four, and then they, like, two years later, they came out with another series where they added, like, a drummer and some other instruments, and so we got all those, and we, we each had our own set in our room, and I wish I knew where those were. I'm sure we sold them off at a garage sale or gave them to Goodwill because out of curiosity, I just looked on the internet this last week, and if I had the whole set, depending on the condition, they're, like, worth over $200 for the set, and I was like, ah. So my kids don't get anything special this year for Christmas because of that. But uh, I, I, I think of the California Raisins and the Claymation Christmas special, particularly when it comes to the passage we're looking at this morning. And so you all can get a glimpse of the awesomeness of the California Raisins and the Claymation special. Uh, Ethan, why don't you uh, just give them a little, little taste of it. Kings of Orient are bearing gifts we travel so far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading still. I mean, just the quality and high definition of it all is just amazing, isn't it? But uh, I, I, I used to love when that came on, that series came on, and, and just watching that because I had all the toys, and then I could, you know, as a kid, I would act them out and do my own songs with them. And, um, and so they were singing, obviously, what Christmas song was that? We Three Kings. And um, to start off this morning, if We Three Kings is one of your favorite Christmas songs, then I'm really going to frustrate you and make you upset uh, very quickly. Um, just dealing with the title We Three Kings itself. The only biblically accurate portion of the title itself is the pronoun we. That's it. Because we know in Scripture, and we're going to read it here in a second, there were wise men, meaning they were plural. There could have been three, there could have been only two, there could have been upwards of 20. The reason that it's, uh, the idea that it's three kings is because there were three gifts. So early Christmas tradition applied each wise men came with their own gift to bring to Jesus on the, the time and, or night that they came. When it comes to, uh, so there's no three, when it comes to kings, it wasn't until 200 A.D. that an individual decided to come out that these men had to be kings because of their wealth and because of the expenses and the gifts that they brought to Jesus. But nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, 
Are these men ever spoken of as king? They're frequently referred to as wise men or perhaps magi in your text. And though we tend to associate the coming of the wise men with Christmas, with Scripture we can discern that they visited Jesus as early as two months to as old as two years of age. And the way we can discern that is because later in the chapter, after the wise men had told King Herod when they saw the star, King Herod issued a decree that all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under were to be killed. And the reason that edict is declared because we don't know how far that these individuals travel. Another thing you're going to have a problem with when it comes to Christmas and the wise men. The wise men did not visit a manger. It, we are told specifically in Scripture that they found young Jesus in a house in verse 11. And finally, to ruin your Christmas pictures and nativity scenes, one common feature of all nativity and manger scenes, what is typically over the manger? A star. But on the night of Jesus' birth, there was no star. The angels told the shepherds that they would find the baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, and that would be the sign for them. The star was given to the wise men who showed up when Jesus was no longer a baby, but at least two, year, two months to two years of age. And so now I'm not telling you to go rearrange your nativity scene or, you know, like rip off your star before you set out this next year. But we need to understand the, biblically, the biblical accuracy of the story and where it falls into the story of Jesus. Also understanding that Matthew is the only writer who places this story within the Gospels. And so there's a reason for that. Well, let's, let's read it, and then we're going to walk through it. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> the word of the Lord says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, you shall, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. <clears throat> when Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until they came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the, what? House. They saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that is living and active. Lord, I think it's sharper than a double-edged sword and it punctures our innermost being. Father, your word is given to us to correct us, rebuke us, train us for righteousness that we might be prepared for every good work that you have set aside for us to do. I thank for everyone here this morning. 
I thank you for just their obedience and willingness to be here to worship you and to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, to be in your presence. And Father, I pray that you would just bless us with the opening of your scriptures by the power of your spirit, that we may have wisdom beyond our own. Father, let your words be the only words that come out of my mouth. Um, Just open our ears to hear what you have to say, our eyes to see what needs to be seen, and our hearts to be softened that we may apply your word into our life today and be transformed to be more like you before we leave this place. Forgive us where we have failed you. Forgive us where we have not worshipped you in spirit and truth. Forgive us, Lord, if, if we are not loving you in this moment with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we ask you to give us the strength to fight any temptation that may come to take us away from your presence or not be able to hear what you want us to hear today. And pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> so as you can see, this passage in chapter 2 is not about three kings. This passage, rather, is about two kings. We have Herod the king in verse 1, and then we have Jesus who has been born king of the Jews. What this passage reveals is a collision of kingdoms happening. We have an earthly kingdom, we have a religious kingdom, and we have an eternal kingdom all colliding within the passage of verse 1 through 12 of chapter 2. And it leads to the question that we're going to have to answer before we leave this place today, is how do we respond to King Jesus? And this passage reveals how we can respond, and there's only one proper way to do it. This story is only found in the Gospel of of Matthew and really sets up the gospel itself as we see Jesus beginning his ministry and how people will respond to him and who he is and what he preaches and what he proclaims. Here's the truth of scripture. Any kingdom we serve, which is not the kingdom of God, is always going to be in contradiction and in competition to our allegiance to God's kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And the truth of Jesus' words in that statement is found in this passage. This passage is also about contradictions, not biblical contradictions, just contradictions on what we think should happen. For example, let's just look at the individuals who are associated in this passage. We have Herod. Herod is in the city of Jerusalem. At this point in time, Jerusalem is a city of power. It is a city of prestige, a city of royalty and political ties to Rome. Jesus, on the other hand, is in Bethlehem. He's in a little village that lays in the shadows of Jerusalem, about six miles to the south. Herod is sometimes referred to as Herod the Great. He was half Jew and half Idumean, which means he was half Gentile, but he had a fondness with the Jewish religion. Rome placed him in power over Jerusalem and in Judea in 37 B.C. It is historically known outside of Scripture that Herod himself was a paranoid maniac who killed his own family because he was scared they were going to try to overthrow him and take his power. When he first came into power by Rome, he brought in some of the Pharisees and the scribes who would be some of the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And he had them executed so the Jewish people would know whose authority they would have to bow down to. Before he himself would die, he brought in religious leaders once again into his palace, into his foyer, and had them executed because he wanted to make sure that the people in Jerusalem would mourn in the passing of his death, even if it wasn't for his death alone. 
He wanted people to recognize that he was in power and he wanted to inflict his power upon his people. Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome, once was quoted as saying, it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's own son. Because this guy was crazy. Herod is the visual power and he felt threatened by the power of an eternal king who had absolute power. And then we have the people in Jerusalem who trembled and were troubled with Herod when the news came by the wise men. These were Jews who were wanting the Messiah to come. They would have heard the scriptures and been expecting God to step out of the heavens and redeem them and rescue them. They should have been overjoyed when they heard the fruition of the Davidic covenant was just down the road, six miles away. But upon hearing that the Christ had been born, they responded in the same way that Herod was and that they were troubled, they were disturbed. Then we have the Pharisees and the scribes. This, these were the religious elite in Jerusalem and Judea. The Pharisees would conduct temple worship. They were originally established to teach the people of God how to live according to God's standards while under pagan authority so that they could be set apart. That was the original purpose of the Pharisee party, is to lead people to be set apart and holy despite the pressures around them. But unfortunately, over time, the Pharisees become another political party, promoting their own political agendas and political traditions, practicing nepotism by favoring their own family members to rise into power as the chief priests. But they were the overseers of the temple. They were the overseers of the temple's finances. In the eyes of the Jewish people, the Pharisees were the individuals who could get closest to God at the temple worship. Then we have the scribes. They could be defined as a religious lawyer. These individuals would pore over the scriptures, studying them and writing them down. They understood the legal principles of the law. They were Judaism's spiritual and intellectual leaders. This was the professional class in the Jewish society. Lastly, we have the wise men. We're not told they're three. We're definitely not told they're kings. Most passages of scripture refer to them as either wise men or magi, never as kings. They seem to be some sort of wealthy astrologers at best. But in the Greco-Roman world, they were recognized to be able to recognize the signs of times and to foretell events of world importance, including the rise of kings. Matthew doesn't tell us where their native land is from. It's speculated it's probably Persia or Arabia or perhaps even Babylon. But what we do know is these individuals were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people. They came from a Gentile nation. They were not connected to God. They did not appear regularly to worship God. They did not know the Word of God. All they knew is that Jerusalem was a city of importance and prominence. And at their particular moment in time, there was a king in Jerusalem who was the king over the Jews. And so it made the most sense that if a king of the Jews was to be born, that's where he should be. So they go to visit Herod. But the ones seeking Jesus were the least likely individuals to do so. It wasn't Herod, king over the Jews. It wasn't the people who were born into the covenant relationship with God who should have been expecting God to step out. It wasn't the people group who were closest to God in the temple and the Pharisees. It wasn't the people who even knew the Scriptures word for word in the scribes. Instead, it was a group of men whom John Milton described as star-led wizards. So if we did have three, we have Gandalf, Dumbledore, and Harry Potter, all meeting a mad king who led an oblivious religious group, who led a people in fear, 
And these, these individuals were all in search of a toddler born in an obscure village to an out-of-wedlock teenage girl and a righteous, righteous carpenter whom no one seemed to care that they were there except outcast shepherds who only knew because an angel announced it to them. Merry Christmas. You can get over in a few months. But in this passage, the wise men come asking Herod, where, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The current king in Jerusalem is taken back as it doesn't make sense. He knows he hasn't had any new king, so he turns to his resources, the religious. He says, where is the Christ to be born? In our own passage, the two main people who are seeking the king and want to know are confused, and the ones who do know don't seem to care. When Herod asks the chief priests and the scribes of people, they don't run to their texts. They don't go open the manuscripts. They seem to know like a good contestant right away and buzz in where Jesus was to be born. They, pro- they quote the prophet Micah in verse 6, and then they borrow from 2 Samuel chapter 5. The religious leaders understood that this child was the anointed one that was promised to David and the Jewish people, and yet they did nothing except give Jer- Herod the information to which he could recite to the wise men. The story then takes a turn, despite having all the information and what was happening six miles away that could be physically witnessed. None of the individuals, except the pagan wizards, go to visit Jesus. When they arrive, they present gifts, our text tells us. At a time, the gifts were seen as symbolic. Gold for royalty, frankincense for deity, myrrh for the point of suffering and death. But Matthew doesn't point these out. He's most likely pointing out the significance of these gifts were fit for a king. Some believe these gifts point to the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 60. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you, and they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. But Matthew again doesn't point this out, and Matthew frequently points out prophecies. What Matthew is led to do by the Spirit is most likely tell us that these gifts that these wise men brought were gifts fit for a king. Finally, we see it was was the wise men, not the Pharisees or the scribes or the Jewish people or Herod who listened to God in the end. Everyone but the wise men had the Word of God available to them and everyone but the wise men failed to adhere to it. The word of God to the wise men would have been a foreign language. Yet when God spoke to them and warning them in a dream, verse 12, not to return to Herod, it is the wise men who are obedient to what God had spoken. The story is a collision of kings. King Herod appointed by Rome, King Jesus anointed by God. And it is a story of collision of three responses on how we will respond to King Jesus. So that's our question today. How do we respond to King Jesus? There's three of them that we see in our passage. The first response is a response of disregard. This is a response of indifference. It's a response of apathy. It's a response that we have no regard for the truth, even if we can hear it, even if we can see it. The response is all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and from all of Jerusalem responded in disregard. At this point in time, the only people who know the significance of who Jesus Christ is is 
Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the shepherds who were told by the angels to go see Jesus, the family who owned the inn, who heard what the shepherds reported about Jesus. You have Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, who John left in her womb and told her the significance of Jesus. Zachariah, who prophesied about Jesus, and now toddler John, who probably couldn't speak very much about Jesus at this moment. But the telling of the events is the wise men placed Jesus as a toddler, most likely around the age of two. We can also gather from Matthew's writing of his events that Mary, Joseph, and toddler Jesus have now settled in Bethlehem because they were found in a house, not in an inn, not in a manger, not in a trough. And when the wise men show up asking Herod about the, the child who was born king of the Jews, that phrasing is significant. They don't say the child born to be the king of the Jews. Yet they say, as a matter of fact statement, that Jesus, no matter how old he is at this moment, is already king of the Jews. And when they show up and reveal that they, what they have concluded through seeing this star, Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, which we'll get back to that in a second. But Herod didn't understand what they were talking about, even though he's infatuated with the Jewish religion. So he goes to his resources. What is interesting is they immediately know where Jesus was to be born. Again, verse 6 is taken from the prophet Micah and adds the anointing portion that was placed on David when he was pronounced king from 2 Samuel. See, the Pharisees and scribes understood Jesus fulfilled the role to which they were called to play. They understood he fulfilled the prophecies which were spoken about him. And interestingly enough, their own words concerning Jesus condemn themselves. They say he would be a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. At this point in time, the Pharisees and the scribes were the one that God had placed in over the Jewish people to be the shepherd over them. They were to lead the people of God to God, but they were failing to do so. Both parties looked more political than religious. Pharisees and scribes both lived in luxury in Jerusalem while the Jewish people suffered. And their own words admit that a true shepherd was needed and they were not it. Yet even with all the information that a king had been born, even where the king was located, no one except the wise men go to see the king. All the Jews in Jerusalem go back to their everyday life. The Pharisees and the scribes go back to their jobs and go back to poring over the scriptures. They go back to Bible study. Herod goes back into his comfort of his palace, even though he could have summoned a chariot and been to Bethlehem in a matter of minutes. They all have a disregard to the astounding news that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One had been born and was currently residing just down the road. It's as if they didn't care what God was doing. And this is the response of disregard when we just don't care what God is up to. And we can all be in danger of doing this and responding to Jesus in the same way. We read a passage of Scripture which guides us to a certain action in our life or to stop something, but instead we don't do it. We hear a riveting sermon, which is all we hear here, right? I got one. Thank you. I think that was Zane or Steve. Thank you. Blessings. Blessings. But we hear a riveting sermon. And the sermon convicts us to a course of action. We even tell the preacher, oh, you stepped all over my toes today, but then we don't change anything. We read a good book about biblical principles, or we listen to a podcast, but we make no effort or no move to change what the Holy Spirit has prompted us. This is having response of disregard to King Jesus. 
A good sermon is only good if it moves us to godliness. A passage of Scripture is only meaningful if it draws us deeper to the things of God. A good book or podcast only has an impact if it changes or corrects a course of action. Sometimes these things call for reflection and meditation, sometimes immediate action, sometimes repentance. The Pharisees and scribes knew the Word of God. They recited it. They knew what God had spoken. And yet they had a complete disregard to what God was doing. That their king was just down the road and they could go see him. How many times, though, do we make excuses to why we don't go be with Jesus? Why we don't get with God's people? I've been busy, I'm tired, got a lot of things on the calendar. We can show a disregard to the authority of God over our own life simply by making excuses not to be with him. When Jesus began his ministry, he was obviously encountered by the Pharisees and scribes. And in one of those encounters, he quoted the prophet Isaiah. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, the context of that scripture in Isaiah was speaking over the siege that was coming upon Jerusalem. And here in Matthew chapter 2, Jerusalem is once again being sieged, but this time by good news. And yet the people of God honored God with their lips by knowing what God had spoken, but they refused to move their heart toward God in the flesh. This world is living in response to disregard for God. That may work for you, but that doesn't work for me. But that's not how Christianity works. When God speaks in our life, it calls for a response. And sometimes we know the response, and so the other dangerous response is this, the response of defiance. The response to defiance is the one of opposing God. It is hostile in nature. It attempts to rise up against God's authority. We see this in Herod's response in the people in Jerusalem. The reason it says all Jerusalem there in verse 3 became troubled with Herod is again, Herod was a monster. He was a paranoid maniac. And what the passage, that, those two verses are saying is that these people, God's people, feared Herod more than they feared God. They feared this man more than the creator of man. They feared what Herod may do if they responded to this good news that was being brought to them. But when God's authority is spoken and we understand the meaning of it in our life, we all can be tempted to respond defiantly. We might just become defensive. Well, I'm not like so-and-so. Well, it's not as bad as whatever we place that in. Defiance happens when God's authority collides with our authority because something has to give. It comes down to the question, do we trust God and trust that God loves us? Do we think that we know better than God? So we have to make a choice. Who is going to have the authority over our life? Who is going to sit on the throne of our own heart? Jesus faced defiance by the Jewish leaders, these Pharisees and scribes, and their defiance led to his ultimate crucifixion. See, when we defy God, we defy who God is. We tell God that you can have saying, a say in certain parts of our life, but not this. This is more sacred to me than you. And so we create this idol. We have a defiance heart which is battling for our response to devotion. That's the third response we see in our passage. It's the response we are to have. 
The response of devotion is seen in terms of trust and faith, time, resources, worship, adoration, obedience. This is how the Gentile wise men responded to God. They trusted what they saw in the sky was something greater than a normal star. They trusted something magnificent was happening and they wanted to be a part of it. They showed their faith in the scriptures, even though it was a foreign language to them, on where the king of, of the Jews had been born and where they could go to see him. They gave up their time and of their resources. We don't know how far these men traveled. Some people speculate that they did see the star on the night of Jesus' birth, and that's what launched them into traveling. But they came from a far distance, so that's why it's two months to two years that Jesus was when they finally arrived. But no matter, they had to leave their family. They had to leave everything they knew. They had to leave their jobs. They had to use their own resources, their own income. They had to give up their own time to go and see what God was doing and to respond in devotion. They did all this because when the wise men showed up, they wanted to worship Him. And that's what they did. After they go see Herod, they go and they saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell down and worshipped Him. That phrase in verse 11 means the Magi didn't simply bend their knees. They fell face down on their faces. Face down on their faces. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's the proper response to who God is is to prostrate ourselves before Him that we are not worthy and that He is only worthy of worship. And then they gave gifts in that worship and they responded in obedience to God when He told them not to return to Herod. So this is the question. How do we respond to King Jesus? Do we respond with disregard? Eh. Do we respond with defiance, defend our own sinful nature? Or do we respond with devotion and worship and adoration for who He is and what He's done for us? The response to devotion is the only way which is pleasing to God and the only way which shows that we actually love God. And so for us, the question is, is there something God has spoken over our life that may need to change or wait, maybe we need to start doing. And these are the responses we're having. Eh, defensive worship. Are we living a life that would please God? It's, it's ironic that it's the only the wise men in this passage who are living a life pleasing God and responding to Him. When it comes to wise men, I didn't mean to ruin your Christmas stories. We're probably never going to sing We Three Kings on Christmas. We may sing it like the first day in January, if you like, really like that song. Uh, you need to go Google that, because when they get to the OOs, it gets a little more dramatic over time, and it'll it just bring a smile to your face. But Before you start rearranging your nativity scene, before you start setting the wise men in a different room from wherever your manger is going to be next year, you can start planning out. We've got five months, right? Five months, and Christmas is here. That's not a happy response. <laughs> but what we traditionally associate with Christmas is actually a beautiful picture. Douglas O'Donnell writes that this scene is filled with scandal. We have a teenage mother, a child conceived out of wedlock, lowly and dirty and usually irreligious shepherds, and then the magi, a bunch of star-led wizards, magicians of sorts, Gentile sinners. 
The image we have of Christmas and our traditional Christmas images is the reason Jesus came. He was born king of the Jews, but he came to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That was Zechariah's prophecy of Jesus Christ the King. And I don't know where we are this morning. Maybe there's been something we've been wrestling with God and we know we've not been responding to His authority over our life the way we should. And we just need to come and kneel before Him and repent of that and respond in devotion and worship. Maybe you're here and you need to respond to King Jesus for the first time and begin a relationship with God. The Bible reveals that we are all sinners. I mean, there's not a person in this room has it all figured out and gets it right all the time. We all fall short of God's holy standards, which He lays out in His Word. But the beauty of the Gospel is God knows this about us, and this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to live a perfect life without sin, which we cannot. He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again that we might have forgiveness from our sins. And the Bible says, if I believe that in my heart to be true, then this is a time of invitation when we are called to respond to that by confessing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And if that's you here this morning, what I want to do is I want to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. I want to be forgiven and be, and be promised eternal life in heaven with Him. I'm going to ask Nick, you coming out by yourself, bud? Yep. All right. Nick's going to come lead us in a song.